We don't have any announcements today. So we'll start with some prayer, since I don't have anything to announce to you today. <laughs> Let's pray real quick. Father, thanks for the chance to be together this morning. Thank you for the sunshine. Um, I pray that we would be able to focus our hearts and our minds, leave um, outside of this room the stresses and anxieties and worries that we all carry. Um, and I pray that we would be able to um, really kind of look at your word and find um, the truth about you, reveal any lies we might be believing about you or ourselves, and I pray um, that you would move in our hearts and as we talk together, may the words of our mouth and the thoughts and focus of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark Twain told us that if it's your job to eat a frog, it's best to eat it first thing in the morning. And if it's your job to eat two frogs, then you should probably eat the biggest frog first. And I, I don't know why this popped randomly into my head, but I feel like studying Romans lately has been like eating frogs. It's been hard, and it's been challenging, and in some ways, um, it's been a slog. And so we've been eating these frogs with the occasional bite of decadent, delicious chocolate cake or whatever your treat of choice is. Um, and we've got more frogs. I hate to break it to you. There are more frogs today. Um, in Romans, we've kind of looked at, we've talked all along about it being broken up into what is grace, how does grace change me, and then how does grace change the way I live. Um, now we are kind of in this chunk in between this, what is grace and how does it change me, and how does it um, affect the way I live. And we get these three chapters of this kind of discussion about the nation of Israel um, and, and the ethnic nation of Israel. And this chunk is filled with um, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, um, election, hardened hearts, blinded eyes, frogs. So we're going to take these frogs today in some, um, in some chunks, and we're going to look at why has Paul seemingly um, interrupted his presentation of the gospel, what exactly is he saying in these verses that we have today, and how do we take this um, scripture that was written for a specific people in a specific place at a specific time and apply it to our 21st century world today. Um, so first... Why is Paul saying this? Why did he interrupt his present, well, seemingly interrupt his presentation of the gospel and grace to um, give us this lesson on the nation of Israel? And I am going to use N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd's words in the New Testament and its world. And um, they propose that this section, I am popping lot, sorry, um, that this section has two purposes, that it has a practical purpose and a theological purpose. So for this practical purpose, let's consider this context. Let's use our, um, I think I learned this from Lisa Geller, our holy imaginations, to think about the context that Romans is presented in. We know it's um, presented to 
some smaller house churches, a variety of them, that they were filled with both Jewish and Gentile believers. And we know there was probably some tension there, um, this long-standing separation between these two groups of people is now being broken down through the gospel. Um, so let's think about maybe maybe the Gentile believers, knowing the nation of Israel's rejection of the gospel, are starting to think that we're a little better or that maybe the gospel is for us now since we are the ones who have accepted. Um, maybe the Jewish believers are starting to um, have a little bit of we see some of the anguish and panic in, in Paul about um, his brothers and sisters in the Jewish nation. Maybe they're starting to feel some of the same ways. So the practical purpose of this section, we can think of it as um, affirming that God has not abandoned Israel and helping the Gentiles to understand the nation of Israel's place in God's plan. Now, the theological reason here that this might, this sec, Paul may have um, considered this important to include is, the, is this idea that is God faithful to his promises? We know the promises and the covenants that he made with the nation of Israel. Is God faithful to those promises? And that's important for us um, even today because these promises that are being made to us in Romans about the gospel of grace can we trust God to keep and fulfill these promises that he's made to us? And Paul is presenting this, sec this section as an answer, yes, we can. So that's why this section, some ideas about why this section might be included. Here is, um, let's, let's tackle what Paul is saying. We have a huge chunk of verses today. I'm not going to read every single one, but we will go through them. Um, so Romans 9 through 11 is this one thought examining God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And that's through a look at Israel's past and their present and their future. Um, chapter 9, Christine walked us through last week. And, and she covered God's sovereignty in God's um, his past election of the nation of Israel. Um, think again, think about that map that she talked about. We're constantly looking back to this map that has been provided. And then today, in this chapter 10 through the first part of chapter 11, we're looking at Israel's responsibility in their present, that the, the present time Paul is talking about, rejection of this gospel that um, God has presented to them. So, our frog of the day. <laughs> what exactly is Paul saying? And let's think about how do we eat a frog? Well, we eat a frog one bite at a time. I mean, you might prefer to swallow the whole thing down. But generally, we eat frogs one bite at a time. And so we are going to take this chunk of verses bit by bit. And we're going to start in verse 1. And we are going to see Paul reiterate his um, deep desire and longing for the nation of Israel to come to know the saving grace of, of Jesus. Um, this is a continuation of the thoughts we've said before that some of these chapter breaks are a little unfortunate. Um, this is another one of them. This is the continuation of the thought that Paul is starting in chapter 9, verses um, 30 through 33, where he's talking about um, Israel seeking righteousness and not getting it, and Gentiles not seeking righteousness 
but getting it. And Paul says here that the Israelites have been trying so hard. They've been keeping all of the rules, but they've missed the point that it's never been about works. Um, He says right here in verse 3, they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself and refusing to accept God's way. They cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. So it's never been about works. And then Paul moves us into um, this chunk of verses, uh, verses 4 through 10. And here, like we did last week, we're going back to this map of the past. Paul spends a ton of time quoting Moses, the prophets. He's pulling in things that the Jewish readers really would have understood here. Um, So in verses 5 through 8, 5 through 8, he's quoting um, Moses and Moses' words in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And he's showing us here, it says that, For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, Don't say in your heart, well, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth? And don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It's on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. So these verses here are a direct quote of, um, of Moses's from Deuteronomy 30. And what Paul is getting at by quoting this is he's showing the Israelites um, that Moses got it. He understood that there was more to God's plan all along than just rule following. And then in the rest of these verses, he goes on, Paul goes on to contrast law-based righteousness with faith-based righteousness. And I think this is something that came up in your homework this past week. So Paul shows us that law-based righteousness is exclusive. The Jews thought that they were the only ones that could get it. Um, It was sought through their own efforts. It could not save them. And it led them to pride and self-righteousness. But faith-based righteousness is for everyone. It's received. um, It is grace received by faith. It's the only way that we can be saved. And it leads us to trust in God and bring him glory. So I want to make sure that we clarify in, these, in this section of verses we're talking about right now, we get verse 9 and 10 that say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart you're made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you're saved. This is such a beautiful, succinct summary of the gospel, but... With the way that some of these words are written, we can be tempted to think that um, it can kind of trick our hearts and minds into thinking that there is some kind of work involved in our salvation. Um, and it's not. I want to make sure that we, we've been saying this all along, and I feel like we're just like beating a dead horse. But the reality is it's so important for us to understand that this grace is not works-based. 
think back to um, our discussion of Romans 4, looking at Abraham and how his faith was credited to him as righteousness, the way that we receive the saving grace, the grace that is saving us, the grace that is justifying us and making us right by God is through our faith. So it, again, it's the means by which we receive our salvation, but it is not the thing that saves us. Um, okay. Now on to verses 11 through 13, another chunk. And in these verses, I, I want to note that Paul has already highlighted some differences for us between the Jews and the Gentiles, that the Jews tried to find um, their own righteousness and didn't receive what they were looking for, but the Gentiles weren't even looking in the first place, but they did receive it. So hi, he, he has already highlighted some differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. Here he is highlighting a similarity, and he tells us that anyone who trusts in God will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. Um, so again, faith, um, salvation by grace through faith has always been the plan. And anyone who chooses to call on the name of the Lord will receive right standing before God. It's the same for everyone. Now in verses 14 through 21, a big chunk here, but we're going to do it. <laughs> um, Paul starts to fall back now after this little kind of interlude of reiterating the gospel. He falls back into this structure of question and answer that he's been using all along. And in these verses, and really the rest of the verses all the way through chapter 11, he asks four main questions. We see three of them through to the close of 10, and then we see another one at the beginning of chapter 11. And um, that first question we see is in verse 14 through 15. And Paul is following this kind of line of if-then thinking all the way to its logical conclusion. There's a ton, actually, I say there's four questions, really, if you're, if you're being literal. There's like eight questions. But I think that chunk of questions that Paul is following in 4 through 15 can be summed up in one overarching question. How will anyone call on the Lord's name? If someone doesn't tell them the good news of the gospel first. And these questions, Paul's kind of addressing this idea of Israel's rejection. Like, how did, we, how did we get there? And can they really be held accountable for Israel's rejection of the gospel? And Paul is telling us, unfortunately, they can. So how, um, how will anyone call on the name of the Lord if someone doesn't tell the good news of the gospel first? And Paul says, that's exactly my point. And um, Isaiah, he references Isaiah here with this idea of how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. He knows that people need to hear the good news before that they can receive it, and he commends those who are bringing the gospel to the people around them. And then the second, but there's a problem here. We have in verse 16, Israel's heard the good news, but they've rejected it. Verse 16 says, not everyone welcomes the good news. For, the, for Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So we know that faith comes from hearing the good news. Israel has rejected the good news, so maybe they didn't hear it. That's question number two. If you have to hear before you can call on the name of the Lord, does Israel actually, have they actually heard? 
And we see in verse 18, Paul answers, yes. And in verse um, 18, he, Paul's quoting David from Psalm 19. And in that psalm, David's speaking of how God is revealed through nature and through his word. And he's praising and he's extolling the greatness of nature's revelation of God and God's word's revelation of himself. So Israel, yes, has heard. Okay, well, maybe if Israel's heard the good news, maybe they didn't really understand it. And that's question number three, and we get that in verse 19. Did the people of Israel really understand? And Paul answers it also in verse 19 with, yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, and he goes on, he's quoting um, Moses and Isaiah here again, we are looking back to the map that God has provided all the way from the beginning. So Israel, excuse me, <clears throat> has heard the good news. They didn't understand it. They time and time and time again choose disobedience and rebellion, even though the consequences were very clear from the start. So... According to Mark Twain, we're supposed to be eating the biggest frog first. We're supposed to be tackling the hardest things first. But it looks like for us today, the biggest frogs have been saved for this end section of our scripture today. So we're going to take our last bites. Ready? Okay. Um, the fourth question and the ultimate question that I think Paul is getting at here starts in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Has God rejected his own people? Has God abandoned the nation of Israel? Does their rebellion render his promises void? And Paul says no. And he gives us quite a lot of evidence for that in these verses. He points to himself. If God had rejected the nation of Israel, how could he, a Jew, be believing in the gospel? And he points to the historical precedent of um, faithful remnant that is in Elijah's time. If God had completely rejected the nation of Israel, how are there, how could God say to Elijah that he has 7,000 who have never bowed down to Baal? And he points to the um, present faithful remnant at that time, the believing Jews of those house churches and Romans. They are the um, present faithful remnant. Paul says in verse... Um, Five through six. It's the same today, for a few of the people of Israel has re have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. In, um, in some translations, you'll see the word elect again there. And since it's through God's kindness, then it's not through their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. And this is um, one of our frogs. We talked to, Christine talked about it some last week when she's covering God's sovereignty and election. Um, this idea that um, anything other than election is not grace. Because if it's anything short of God choosing us, choosing to save us, um, that would mean there's something that we are doing on our part to receive salvation. And I... If we, if we haven't learned anything yet, I hope you're learning that 
Our salvation is not based on our works. And that he saved any of us at all is evidence of his kindness. And that's something Paul's getting at here. And I want to take a minute to emphasize something Christine told us last week. Um, How this works, why God chose this way, I don't know. It's a mystery. I have spent way too much time trying to figure it out. It hurts my brain. I don't understand it. And that's hard for me because I love to understand things. I love to be able to have an answer for questions. And I don't have an answer for this one. And, you know, I think for me, that is perhaps a grace of the Lord. He's reminding me that he is God, I'm not, and my finite little mind can't understand it, and so I have to trust him. And that can be a very unpopular way to be thinking about this. Um, But I, I think that this is one of the ways that God's working for my good in trying to remind me to trust him. That I, that I don't have the answers and that I need to look to Jesus. So our last chunk of verses today, Romans 11, 7 through 10. And I'm going to read these ones. Um, so this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they're looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so they don't see, and closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble, and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they can't see, and let their backs be bent forever. Those seem like some harsh words. Um, I am going to lean on the wisdom of Tim Keller here, because I think he explains these verses so beautifully. Um, He says about these verses that here seems to be the order. First, Israel sought the righteousness of God, but when confronted with the choice of getting it either by works or by gift, the majority sought it through works, which the elect accepted as a gift, and then the majority were hardened. And he goes on to say that verse 7 can be paraphrased this way. Israel sought the righteousness of God earnestly but wrongly, except for the elect. And as a result, the majority were hardened. So people who wanted a relationship with God, who earnestly sought after it, are hardened. But how and why? Paul gives us an answer in verse 10 when he quotes one of David's psalms yet again. The Israelites bountiful table becomes a snare and their blessings cause them to stumble. So what does this mean? David's telling us that all those beautiful things that Paul lists in chapter 9, the Jews' adoption, the covenants that God made with them, the law he gave them, those all should have pointed them to Jesus. But instead, those blessings became burdens as they clung to law-keeping as their means of salvation. So let's think back to the beginning of chapter 10, verse 3. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. The majority's hearts are hardened because in pride and selfishness, um, they're seeking relationship with God on their own terms. So let's think about this. Think about a prideful, selfish person. I'm sure we've all encountered one of those in our lifetimes. And if you haven't, 
I'm sure you will. Are they people that are generally willing to consider anything other than their own way? They're not. And because of that, we often think of prideful people as people who are cold and hard. So hardness of heart seems to be the logical end reached by a person who's set on seeking relationship with God on their own terms. Again, Tim Keller, he says it, he says it this way, though God executes it, it's a natural consequence. So God in his sovereignty chooses the people of Israel, and the majority of Israel in their stubborn pride rejects the gift of salvation through faith in Christ, and in turn had their hearts hardened. So next week we'll finish the rest of chapter 11, and we'll see that God is faithful and there is hope for Israel yet. And Lisa gets to, gets to tackle that, for, she gets to eat that frog. So we've eaten our frogs. We've covered the why and the what of these verses. So let's quickly go through the how. Um, How do we take what's written here and apply it to our lives today? And while we know that, again, this is written to a specific people in a specific time and place, there are some principles that I feel like we can pull out of this text that have some both internal application causing us to assess the conditions of our own hearts and external application in our interactions with others. So first, the internal application. Let's take a lesson from the error of the Israelites' ways. Let's ask ourselves, are we so caught up in the checklist of do's and don'ts that we fail to trust Jesus? Do we rely on our own work, or do we rely on Jesus' work on our behalf? We have to become care- be careful that we don't become insensitive to, we don't have our hearts hardened towards the incredible gift of grace available to us when we call on Jesus' name. This is a struggle for me. I get caught up in um, measuring up, and, and I get stuck sometimes on how I have failed miserably, and I forget to look at Jesus. So this is such a great challenge for my own heart. And then our external application, and I've used this application before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it is, again, very applicable. We pray and we preach. Um, first, we pray. In the very first verse of chapter 10, verse 1, Paul references again that anguish and that sorrow that he feels over his unbelieving fellow Jews. And if we read through this verse too quickly, um, we can miss something that Paul says. He says, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I'm sure that we have all have people in our lives that are unbelievers. And again, if you don't now, you probably will at some point. Um, if the bad news that Paul tells us at the beginning of Romans is true, and if the remedy, the good news that of the gospel is true, we should be as desperate as Paul is um, for those people to be saved. So we look to verse 1, and we see what Paul does with that anguish and that desperation. Um, his pain pushes him towards prayer. And so we should be desperately praying for the salvation of the people around us. And we preach. How can anyone call on the name of the Lord if they haven't first heard the good news of the gospel? And so we must be ready and willing to preach. And I'm not talking about standing on a street corner 
proselytizing. I'm not talking about standing on your neighbor's porch sermonizing or hanging out by the coffee maker at work, just blasting everyone with some theological glory. Um, I'm talking about being mindful of the way that we interact with others. I'm talking about being willing to share the good news of Jesus. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for, for, the, reason for the hope you have. Um, this happened to me in college once. I had a friend who, um, I, you know, honestly, I'm not really sure where his belief started. I don't know if he started as a believer and I don't know. But this was a season that he was considering conversion to Islam. And so he, we were pretty good friends, and, and he knew I was a believer, and he asked me one day um, why I believed what I believe. Why Jesus of all the options? And I was able to share with him, um, I was able to share with him why. And it happened, it just so happened he was asking me these questions not long after my dad had had a massive, almost fatal stroke. It was a very scary and stressful time in my family's life, and he, I was able to point to the season of my life and say, Jesus gave me peace and hope and strength in a really dark and scary time that couldn't have come from anywhere else, and that's why Jesus for me. Um, did my friend give his life to Jesus that moment? No. Did I lose touch with him over the last 14 years? Yes, I have. Do I still pray for him whenever the Lord brings him to mind? I do. Is it possible that our interactions and conversations then planted a seed that someone else will one day get to harvest? Yes. And I hope and I pray that that is the case. And, and that, that's even a possibility because I was faithful to what the Lord called me to in that moment, to share the reason for the hope that I have. Sisters, Scripture promises us that all who call on the name of the Lord will never be put to shame. We'll never regret our decision to give up our own way. We will never be disappointed by leaning wholly on Jesus. It might be hard, but it won't let us down. And it won't let anyone else down either. So we must guard our own hearts. We must pray for and preach to the hearts of others. To him be all the glory today and always.